I am so excited to be here today. Oh my gosh, I was so impressed with the energy in the room when I came. I go to a lot of conferences, but seeing you all here early and just the conversations that were happening, I just really want to thank Orange County, Alzheimer's Orange County for pulling this together. I know it's been a hard journey for all of us, especially after the pandemic and feeling alone, and boy, has that changed today. I was inspired by the rabbi when he did his chant. I don't know if you felt it with your hands out, but I could just feel all of the energy in this room. My hands were actually tingling um, from all of you here. And then the panel of doctors and the information they gave us was just so exceptional. I hear from people all around the world wanting answers, and how lucky were you to be here today to be able to get all of that wonderful, wonderful information And then, of course, Mark, um, expanding on what they do here, the awards during lunch, how inspiring. I would just like to give a a clap again for all of the wonderful people doing great work, and um, you are all part of that here with us today. So today we're going to be talking about connection and renewal, and connection and renewal is so integral to surviving this disease. You know, when we feel isolated and alone, it makes it very, very difficult. But when we're connected, we automatically get renewed because we know we're not on this journey alone. My, my journey of 30 years with my mom, usually everyone gasps going, how can that be? You know, I tell people that was the biggest gift I'll ever receive in my life. It came wrapped in a really strange package. But the life lessons that I was taught during that journey were absolutely incredible. And one of the things that I want you to keep in mind is what's good for dementia is good for all of the world. So the lessons that you learn through this journey, you will be able to share with others and you will be able to use it in your life and others will too to live a better, more fulfilled life. And I don't know if you're like me, but when we got the diagnosis, I mean, I, my world was tipped upside down. I didn't know the front door from the back or even what house I was in. I was just so overwhelmed and, and felt alone. And I love the work that all uh, OC does to bring you together here today. You see, for so many years, we've been trained that aging and illness is bad. But we can't escape either of them. So we have to learn how do we live with that. We've been taught that a person with Alzheimer's or dementia looks like this picture of my mom. End stages, days looked, and people will say, you know, she doesn't know who you are. I had friends, two kind of sets of them. One asked, how was she doing? Because they really cared. And the other set wanted to know because they wanted to give me permission to never go back and see her again because they were so uncomfortable with the conversation, and that has to change. We cannot ignore this disease. We have to support one another through this. People with dementia um, might appear at times with that stare and that shell of a body look, but never ever forget that they always have this brilliant soul that never ever leaves them. It just shines at different times, and we have to be much more in tuned. Now, who here, raise your hands if you've ever been frustrated dealing with the diagnosis. Yeah, that's pretty common. And I want you to know it's okay to feel those emotions. 
You know, when we get in trouble is when we pent them up, and then they come out sideways, and then our guilt is even higher. And I think our stigmas have really set us up for false expectations. Most people walk out of the doctor's office with a prescription, another appointment, and they're told to get their affairs in order. Now, if we would have done that as a family, we would have lost 30 years with my mom going, hey, time's up. Come on, let's get on with it, you know, but we didn't do that. We relished every moment with her. And again, it's not always easy to do that. Why am I going in reverse? This is because my glasses are on my head. I'm having the same problem that they had earlier. (laughs) Um, So we really need to focus on different things. Feeling isolated and unprepared in this journey is very common, and yet When we don't talk to other people, we don't know that it's common. We just feel like we're going through this alone and we're not handling it. Who here has been upset with another family member or friend who you felt hasn't given what you've needed? Again, very, very common. Probably the biggest question that I get from people is that. And communication with family and friends gets really complicated. And there can be all kinds of emotions. And especially when it comes to family, we've all grown up in different roles. And as we age, those roles don't change. I'll never forget the elder law attorney who is the top in our state. I brought my folks to. And she told my folks, my dad didn't trust me to be his power of attorney. She's the best elder law attorney in Minnesota. But he, she said he still saw me as a party hardy teenager and he just remembers the trouble I caused in the family for not following the rules and sometimes we forget that that happens with us so there's an equation I want you all to remember and I call it the reaction equation and this isn't just for people with dementia it's for all of us our current attitude plus our past experiences create our perceptions And our perceptions then trigger our reactions. This was a lifesaver for me in so many ways, and I'll give you some examples in a little bit on this one. I also want to address, you know, how how do you work with family? How do you get everything done that needs to be done? How many people here have a checklist? With the checklist, I always felt really comfortable. I printed that out. And then what happened was I was talking with my siblings one day, and I thought I was very organized. I've always been the organized one. Anyone had a problem in the family? Eh, who did they go to? I'm the fixer. How many here are fixers in their families? Common role. Well, all of a sudden, I'm not the fixer. I'm not organized. I'm the control freak. I am the control freak, and that's why they don't come around. And I said, you know, I understand where you're coming from, And I probably have had tight reins on things. And I'll take some of the responsibility, but I'm not taking it all. Because you could have had this conversation sooner. But you chose not to because you didn't want to feel the emotions that come with this disease. You didn't want to accept the changes that we couldn't control. And we ended up having a really good conversation on that. And, you know, what was my need for control? And what was, what was their need? My question to them was, and what was their need to run away from it? <laughs> you know, um, It really came down to 
feeling that I could care the best I could. You know, my mom with dementia, my dad had brain cancer. They were wonderful parents. I wanted to be a wonderful daughter. I wanted to give to them what they gave to me. And so I set the expectations high because I felt they deserved no less. But in doing that, I didn't realize I was intimidating my siblings and their spouses because they weren't me. And I realized one day they shouldn't be me. My parents have a right to the diversity in the families. My brothers and their wives all brought different things to the table. And for me to have that bar so high and to intimidate them, which I didn't know I was doing at the time, was harmful to my folks. So sometimes we have to look within and have those conversations that we might not always want the answers to. And when you're struggling with family or when you're struggling with your loved one with dementia, I found two real simple coping skills. One we do every day, all day long, and it's just breathing. But I, I don't know about you, I was raised where my mom would always tell us when we were younger that if we were making a big decision or if we were ready to get into a, an argument with a friend, my mom would say, count to ten. And all she was doing was saying, get balanced. But I didn't know that. And so now what I do is I take actually 11 deep breaths in. And when I breathe in, I ask God or my higher power, whoever you believe in, maybe it's yourself, to give me what I need in that moment. And then on the exhale, I ask that all of the toxins in my mind, body, and soul leave the building. How many people here have inner critics that are yapping at them in their head? And boy, they beat us up, and we, we, give, we, we give them free rents. we got to kick them out the door. You know, hear them once, but then, like, say, okay, I'm moving on here. But that really helped me, and breath actually will change your whole metabolism, and you will feel a calmness, and it costs you nothing. The other thing that I would do when I would get really frustrated, um, and I don't know about you, but I would, when I was really frustrated, I would, when the house cleared out, I would go down in the basement and I would have a screaming match with God. What's going on? I need some help here. Come on. I'm doing everything I can. And what I realized was I wasn't asking the right question. I was telling God what I thought I wanted. And when I switched to asking, what's my lesson in all of this? All of a sudden, within 20 minutes to two days, I found the answer. Because I was so focused on the minutiae and the craziness of trying to fix something, I really shut down and wasn't open to listening or looking deeply at what could really help me. And so those two things uh, were just fantastic as far as coping skills for me. But sometimes what we have to do is just make a list of what do we want to happen. I mean, make that list of what do you want to happen and what don't you want to happen. Because when we make those lists, then we can start looking at commonalities of triggers that cause both of those things, one that we want to duplicate and one that we don't want. The other thing is 
um, we are stronger together. So having a team, I know sometimes it's really easy to isolate ourselves, and that's not healthy for us, and it's not healthy for those that we care for either. We all need to interact. We, we need that breath of fresh air, and we need to be able to laugh. We need to be able to express our emotions because they're not good and they're not bad. They're just normal. And if you are to the point where you're waking up every day in the same mode and it lasts all day long, something is wrong. I mean, how many people got ticked off just driving over here because somebody probably cut them off on the road, <laughs> you know, or parking was a little further than they thought or, you know, whatever it might be. Those things are normal, and it's, it's okay to express those things. I think we really have to take a deep look at ourselves and, and how does dementia make us feel. As family members, this is what I hear all the time, I am scared to death. I feel like I'm on a roller coaster, and I don't know when the next turn and jag is going to hit me, but I know it's there. I can feel its presence, and it's ominous. But yet, how many of us used to like that roller coaster ride, that unknown? A lot of us waited in long lines to go on the roller coaster. But it didn't weigh us down. Somebody's life wasn't in the balance. And I think sometimes we have to, and this is going to sound funny, but put the fun back into the unknown. Because we've probably all had to take a detour at one time in our life, and we found a really unexpected thing taking that detour that we never, ever would have experienced if we would have taken the path we chose. So I think being open and being fluid on this disease is, is really important. I think it's important to imagine for just a moment what the difference would be if caring for a loved one with dementia felt calm and comfortable. How would you wake up and feel every morning if that was it? How would your kids feel and the siblings and the neighbors and the coworkers and people at church? How would that change things if we could bring that calmness and that comfort to dementia? And that's really one of my goals is to shift dementia care from crisis to comfort. And I think the only way we can do that is to actually have these conversations. So today, I'm hoping to help you figure out a way to be able to do that, because I think it's absolutely critical, again, not just for who we're caring for, but for ourselves and for society as a whole. One of the things that we have been taught over and over again is that caregiving is a state of crisis. Very few people say, sign me up. This is what I want to do with my life. And thank God we have professionals that have signed up and, and are doing that. But most family members don't sign up for that. We hear about that in reference to maybe having a child. But we don't when it comes to aging and illness. And so for that, I want, to, I want you to change your perspective of what caregiving is. Because I truly believe we are all caregivers from the moment we're conceived. 
Now, people will look at me and say, Lori, how can a baby in a womb be a caregiver? But think about it. How many conversations have changed? How many tubbies have you touched? Everything changes once you know someone is pregnant. You know, there's, there's data that says the babies recognize our voices. They recognize music. And they react in and out of the womb. So no, caregiving is something that is innate in all of us from a very, very basic level. But some of us grow out of it. Some of us become fearful of it. But it truly, in my belief, is a natural state of being. Everybody wants a silver bullet. You know, the doctors were talking about the medications. You know, I don't think we're going to see a cure in my lifetime, and I doubt in yours. And I'm not here to be Debbie Downer, but I do believe it's important for us to understand that Alzheimer's and dementia has many different symptoms, just like cancer. Back in the day, people couldn't even say the word. They said the C. They couldn't say cancer. They just said C, how they reference cancer. And look at how many different types of cancers we have, each needing its own treatment. And so it's going to take us a while. You know, dementia is really a baby disease. It's only been around a little over 100 years. And it's expanded. And some people get multiple types of dementia. Many people's diagnosis changes um, as they learn more. And our job is to adjust to our new normal. Now, again, dementia is not normal aging, but it's becoming pretty popular if you ask families, you know, within their families. I mean, there's, there's millions of people dealing with this. And even the numbers quoted earlier today, those are just the ones we know, And we all know there are people that haven't gotten diagnosed yet. One of the most important things I think we can do is become a high-bred caregiver or CAR-E-giver. And the CAR stands for Conscious Awakening of Relationships. And the E-giver is about our emotional giving. We've all heard forever that You know, it's not what we do, but it's how we make people feel. And you need to keep that top priority all the time. It's life-changing in terms of how you care when you remember that. We also have to remember that every aspect of life, people want meaning and purpose. And that's a person with dementia in any stage. They still want to feel that they belong, that they matter. And so many times people pull back and they don't engage. Sometimes that's because family and friends pull away. And again, I urge you to try to pull them in. Still do normal things. You might have to adjust. But, you know, my mom and dad, they loved golfing. They loved going on their pontoon rides. We went on a trip um, with, my, with the family, went, went on a cruise. In fact, in I think it was 2017, I did a dementia-friendly cruise, and a bunch of people went on. And we had a ball with people in all different levels, 
caregivers and their families. Including them um, is amazing. Giving them joy. Again, things will change in terms of how you have to adapt. Um, this one picture here, when my mom was more in her end stages, this was a more difficult picture for her friends to be around um, because it was harder for them to kind of say goodbye. Yet it gave my mom so much joy. Uh, and they may not have seen it because they were looking at different things than what I saw in my mom because I knew, I knew her. So we have to change what we do and how we do it if we're going to change our outcomes. And some of those things I do want to touch base on can be simple things like food. A lot of people used to go out to dinner or they'd have big parties or gatherings, and now they can't so much anymore. I remember going out to eat with my mom, and at first she could handle a menu. Then it became more difficult, and she would get upset when she would order something, and then she'd be mad because when it came, that's not what she ordered. So then I said, Mom, you know, I can't decide what I want. How about we split a couple of things? And now she's helping me have a nice meal, and she never complained after that. We just split the meal together, and we, we doubled our odds. Um, she used to go through the buffet lines, and that worked wonderful for a while until she got distracted by all the food. And pretty soon she had five plates going. She'd put one down, and she'd see something else, and she'd start another one, and, and she'd keep going. So we couldn't do the buffet lines anymore. You know, but it's about adaption, learning how to ask questions instead of, you know, what kind of salad dressing do you want? And they spin off 45, let them know ahead of time, you know, or would you like, uh, you know, uh, something hot or something cold? You know, keeping things simple for them to be able to participate in. Making food easier when we're having it in the house. Finger foods are much, much easier um, setting our tables differently. This can be really overwhelming and a lot, of, a lot of frustration. You know, if you have a nice dinner and this has been your history in terms of how you do your gatherings, but are you going to get really upset if your crystal gets knocked over and broken or a glass of wine gets spilled? Is it worth it anymore? Maybe you have smaller gatherings. Maybe you place your person with dementia at the end of the table instead of the middle because they're going to be able to view everyone and they're going to be able to read lips and they're not going to get as much background noise. Little things we can change very, very easily. Same with our decorations for Christmas and Halloween can be scary. Lights and stuff um, can have a big impact. Um, small gatherings or big gatherings um, will all matter to them. People worry about sporting events and things that they used to partake, partake in um, from boating or maybe it's hunting, all different types of things. You have to look at safety first. Uh, even if somebody really wants to do that, how do you still make that happen? Can you still travel? Yes. In fact, our group in Minnesota is working with an international group now, and Tipa Snow actually just did, I want to say, nine videos to help train TSA for flights. Um, you can get what's called the sunflower lanyard um, that identifies someone with an invisible disability, and you can get through TSA easier and a little more assistance. Um, the sunflower lanyard... 
If you go to, um, actually, I'm going to say if you go to Dementia Map, it's going to be the easiest way for me to, to tell you. And then put in just travel, um, there's, that group's website will come up, and you'll be able to find more information on that. There's also travel companions you can hire. Um, people still like to take their you know, winter breaks, and how do they do that? When is it time to stop? We have to live in their world, but we still have to live in ours, too. And so it comes down to safety and ease. Um, our words are really important, and they can change our expectations. And so it's very, very important, I think, for us to understand our verbiage and make some changes. So we've really switched from corrective care to compassionate care. You know, with dementia, you cannot use logic when you're trying to argue a point. It's not going to happen because what they have in their brain is logical to them, even if it's not to us. So we have to learn to pick our battles. In fact, I just uh, did an interview with Dr. Alan Zimmerman that airs today, and it's all about tough conversations and how do you structure those? And that can work with someone in really early stages, but it can be really, really helpful with family members as well. We've switched from fixing to being more supportive. Um, that will ease your mind and theirs. We've, we've gotten rid of kind of the power control and bring us back to this give and take relationship. We've got to get rid of being stagnant and become fluid. You know, be ready for anything and just let things flow and know that you will get through it. Um, we have to stop excluding people and be inclusive. I don't think that we will ever make sustainable change if we are not inclusive and don't listen to all voices at all levels all around the world. And, you know, there is so much happening in this arena of dementia right now. It's really quite exciting. And I'm not talking about necessarily the drugs. I'm talking about social supports, organizations like uh, all uh, Orange County. And um, it's just incredible the things that are out there that can help you. We have to stop looking at our differences and looking at our commonalities. Our differences create walls and barriers. Our commonalities expand our knowledge and, and create friendships. We look at things differently when we understand them, but we can't understand them if we're not willing to have a conversation or ask a question. Care versus cure, you're hearing a lot more about social care, and I am praying so hard that with, with what Biden has put out there that things really come into place to support families. You guys, especially after the pandemic, so many services went away and haven't come back. We need our congressmen and women to understand you're not just a number. This is a humanity thing, and this affects so many people. I would also recommend that we get rid of the word caregiver. I think it sets us up to be burnt out. Caregiver says, I'm giving it all away, and I'm not getting anything back. But if we switch to the terms care partner and care companion, now we're back in relationship. We know our person with dementia can still feed our soul. 
And so often on this journey, we get so busy, we forget about the small moments of comfort where we're just sitting next to somebody on the couch, not saying a word, but you're just at peace, and so are they. Those are the important moments of life, that comfort, that safety, that peace, that love. We hear about person-centered and relationship-based care. I um, personally, I don't really care so much for person-centered. I think it's overused and underdelivered. I really like the term relationship-based care because I think that is what we do day in and day out. And if we use that term, we're going to know we're not alone. We're doing this together. Because sometimes as a, as a care partner, we can feel alone and like we're doing it all. And we even forget about who we're doing it for at times, which seems like impossible that that can even happen. People don't want to be a patient. They want to be a person. You know, nobody wants to be a title. Oh, you're the one with dementia, with Alzheimer's, with Lewy body, with frontal temporal lobe. We don't go around and say, oh, you have a, you have a heart attack, uh, you've got diabetes, you've got cancer, uh, you've got whatever. We don't, we don't label people like that. Why are we doing that with dementia? That has to stop. It's important in terms of how we care for somebody, but it is not, and it never will be, who they are as a whole and who they've been. So let's recognize that. The other term we use a lot is behavior. My person has a behavior. i got to get rid of it. How do I get rid of it? i got to fix it. Well, think about that term behavior to you. I mean, I'm 64, and I still remember in school, somebody in the corner, we didn't have a dunce cap back then, but a few years before that they did. That is not a compliment. I mean, so think about how many times we use that term and how that must emanate within somebody with dementia, no matter what stage. They still can take everything in even if they can't respond to us. It's kind of like I remember going uh, to hospice and, and visiting a loved one, and the hospice nurse pulled me aside and says, you just say whatever you have to say. Don't expect a reaction, but know they've received your message. Know that they know. And sometimes we ignore that. So think of a behavior as a reaction, as a clue, as a signal that something is off. They're not doing this to, to push our buttons, and that's a lot of times what we think. Oh, they're just getting under my skin. They know how to do that. It's not about that. They've typically lost the ability to be able to do that. They're just saying, I am really uncomfortable, and I need your help. And when we change our mindset to one of a heart set, it makes it easier to be able to find the changes there. So as compassionate as we need to be with them, we have to be compassionate with ourselves. Who here has felt guilty? Not all of you, I don't believe that for one second. You know, and guilt is a horrendous thing to carry, and it's so heavy, and it changes our personalities in how we do things. 
you have to realize you're doing the best you can in every moment that you're given. And it's not going to be perfect, but it wasn't before, and you weren't perfect before. So stop believing that you were. None of us are perfect, and we're all going to screw up. And dementia is a game of trial and errors. Not one educator or organization will be able to give you all the answers that you want and deserve because you are filled with information and 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 we have to share that information with one another. Because that's going to speed up the process of of us shifting dementia care from crisis to comfort. Don't keep little nuggets that you've learned to yourself. Share them in your support groups. Start a blog. Talk to your family and friends. Let them know the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So again, know our words matter, and they influence our outcomes. If we believe it's a behavior and they're pushing, it's a signal, a clue, and a reaction, and they need our help, we're going to dig deeper, and we're going to find solutions to bring them comfort. It's about small, simple pleasures. I love this picture of Vince Zangar. Zangaro with his dad, who had dementia, who's doing amazing work in the field with his Alzheimer's Music Fest. But it's the small moments that will melt your heart today and into the future. It's not the big, flashy things of keeping up with, with the Joneses at all. We have to learn to appreciate the things we missed. And my perfect example of that is... I ask people, and I'll ask you, what do you want to remember in your life? The tears, the fears, or the joy? What do you want? Joy. Joy. Okay, so then we have to focus on the joy. You see, the tears are typically about worrying about, am I going to remember the person who was? Or the life that you had planned isn't going to be. And those things are all important. You need to grieve those. They talk about dementia being part of ambiguous loss, where it's just over and over and over again. It's not that someone's died, but it's just another piece is gone and another piece you're responsible for. And it can be really difficult. But what I realized in that process was one day I was really down. I was in the rabbit hole. And then it hit me, how lucky am I to hurt this bad? Because I was able to love that deeply. And that's the only reason it hurts that bad, is because you love so deeply. And what a gift that is, because so many people never, ever experience that. And that helped me climb up and changed everything in terms of how I dealt with my grief. And then there's the fears of all the things that could happen. You pick up the 36-hour day or, you know, so many other things, and you're like, oh, my gosh, all of this stuff is coming my way. No, it's not. Every person with dementia is different. Every care partner is different. Every environment is different. 
And so if you're like me, I used to make plans A, B, C, I think I went up to Z, of how I'm going to avoid all this stuff from happening, how I'm going to control it, because I'm that good. And then I realized, I can't do that. Lori, you know when a crisis hits, you are going to grab everything you know, everything within you, and you are going to make the best possible plan. You do not need to divert yourself in trying to pretend like you can control this. Let it go. You see, when we're living in grief in those tears or when we're living in fear of the future, we miss the joy. The joy can actually only be identified or created in the present moment. So if you want joy, you have to show up and you have to look for it. And you will be amazed at what you will find in your life. And again, this... This is in all of life. Our earlier stage people feel like they're invisible. This is just an example of some of the people I do, what's called dementia chats, where we pick a topic and they're the experts and they tell us what life is like, how, how we can help them, how we get in the way, what they worry about, what they want. And I can't tell you how often some of these individuals get bullied because they look fine, but they're not. They're not. And we all know, we've all been in a place where we have been really nervous and the energy it takes to try to fit in. And that's what they're doing day in and day out. That is exhausting to try to pretend you're something that you aren't anymore. We have to understand that no one's going to win an argument with a person with dementia because, again, the logic is gone, and yet we go down that hole. So we have to learn to pick our battles. You know, it's kind of like when mama's happy, the whole family's happy. Same with dementia. You know, try to keep the calm and the peace. Focus on abilities, not disabilities. So, for example, my mom complained. They retired. They went up to the lake. And my dad, my dad started golfing. And my mom would complain to everyone that she was a golf widow. He would leave in the morning. He wouldn't get home till late at night. That was not true. But in her reality, my dad was playing at least 18 holes a day and leaving her home alone. He would leave like at 5 in the morning. He'd usually be home by 11, noon at the very latest. She didn't even get out of bed till 10. Sometimes 10.30. He would have the coffee maker set for her. He would have the paper and her donut, and she'd be all set to go. But in her mind, when he came home two hours later, she just nagged him to death. And she told the whole world what a horrible husband my dad was. And they were two peas in a pod, very much in love. And so one day we decided, Mom's still mobile. We're going to take her golfing. And so when we took her golfing... My husband and my dad were ahead of us, and mom was on the edge. (laughs) She was on the the edge of um, a sand dune, and she swung her club, and all of a sudden, she she is in the middle of it. And not only is she laying there, but she's doing the breaststroke. She is swimming, 
And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to get her out of there? What's going on? And then it hit me. And I was so thankful that her childlike mind took her back to a safe place. My mom used to be a lifeguard. And instead of being afraid that she had fallen in the sand trap and couldn't get up, she was beaming as she was swimming along Lake Phelan. And it was incredible. But it made me realize in that moment, again, this reaction equation. That's when I, when I created it. It was her current attitude plus her past experience that created her perception and then triggered her reaction. And instead of being mad or angry or embarrassed, I was just grateful that I could put the, the puzzle pieces together because so often we don't take the time to figure out the whys. Again, sometimes these detours can just be a really great, spontaneous gift. Without her falling in that sand trap, I never would have created that equation, which helped me out immensely in caring for her. I truly believe that we can help people in the best fashion by coming together in unity as community. You know, sharing our stories, um, laughing together, crying together, Instead of getting ready for the memorial that everyone you know, tells us to prepare for an end of life, start creating a living memorial. Now, many of you will look at these pictures and go, man, that lady had a lot of bad hair days. But who here hasn't? Who in this room has someday said, I'm not taking a shower and I'm just staying in my jammies all day long? And yet we don't allow somebody with dementia to do that. It's just, I'm tired. I want to relax. I just, I don't need to show up on that level all the time. So instead of looking at things like that, look at, look at the moments of joy. Look at the smiles. Listen to the giggles, the glint in the eyes. You know, share your knowledge. Open up the conversation and, and help people with the process of living graciously alongside dementia. You know, routines, uh, I, in doing my dementia chats, Harry Urban, who lives in Pennsylvania, said one time, you know, routines are great, and, and I know our, our care partners really think they're important. He said, but the one thing they miss, he says, is, it's their routine. It's not ours. And when they don't understand our routine, that's when the battles come in. So maybe they don't want to take a shower or a bath every day. Maybe they've gone back in time where they only did that once or twice a week. How are we going to adapt? Are we going to still fight that battle? Or are we going to accommodate a routine that makes sense to them? Maybe their sleep patterns have changed. We have, to, we have to understand the environment. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here. Um, one is, <laughs> one was Christmas with the Cranks. Anybody see that movie? Um, it, was a, it was a funny movie where one neighborhood all put up these big Frosty the Snowman on top of their houses. And one family, the Cranks, one year decided, eh, we're not spending all this money on electricity and decorations. We're going to go on a vacation. And we brought my mom to this movie. 
Now, my mom at the time, I mean, needed guidance walking. Her mobility wasn't that great. She really couldn't get in and out of a chair without assistance. We're sitting in the film, and everything's going fine. And all of a sudden, there's this moment where the neighborhood comes in front of the crank's house, and they are all protesting. And they're going, free Frosty! Free Frosty! And they want the cranks to get that Frosty up on the roof. And they want them to participate in the neighborhood tradition. And all of a sudden, in the theater, (laughs) I hear my mother, and I look over. She's sitting next to me. She got out of her chair by herself, and she's throwing her fist free frosty free frosty and I see my niece and all I can see is her eyeballs looking at me like what's going on with grandma and I'm like I don't know I just hope it's a short scene you know and my mom sits back down and the theater just exploded in applause she got a few woo-hoos And her chest just heaved up, and she had this smile, which made total sense. My mom was a big political advocate, and she was always going for the underdog. She would have been the neighbor organizing, you know, that whole thing. And she took pride in that. Now, I could have tried to grab her and sneak her out. We probably would have ended up on the floor. And... Instead, it was a moment everyone got to experience. We all lived through it. Another time, my mom was in the nursing home, and she actually decided to move in there because my dad ended up having to move in. And in a moment of clarity, now this is a woman at the time who couldn't tell you if she should put on her snow boots or her flip-flops if she looked out the window. And in a moment of clarity, she said, I want to move into the nursing home. And, of course, I'm, like, devastated. Like, don't you like it here? This was a family plan. We talked about this. I'm taking it all personally. And she goes, no, Lori, it's not that at all. I said, no one wants to move to a nursing home, Mom. And she's like, Lori, we've been together 49 and a half years, and I'm not leaving him now. There is so much within our hearts and souls that we have to recognize within our people living with dementia in terms of what's important to them. So when she was in the nursing home, she went through this period where only red and pink clothes were hers. So it was my assignment to go through her closet with her and get rid of every other color. So as we're doing that, I'm pulling a lot of stuff out And she starts sobbing hysterically. And I'm like, Mom, if you've changed your mind, I'll hang them all back up. And she she wouldn't stop. She couldn't talk. And then I realized right next to her, the TV was on. And on the TV, we were bombing Iraq. And her perception... Her perception was that was right outside the room. She was petrified. And all I had to do was turn the TV off. And within seconds, her smile was back. I mean, think of the news. Most of us don't even like watching it anymore. Think of what it does to somebody with dementia. 
another time, she was a big jag watcher, and the staff were having problems with her because she believed jag was the real politics of the world. And when she would talk with the staff, and the staff didn't know, my mom started having some of those incidences of behaviors and aggression, you know, and putting the staff in place. But instead of them picking up the phone and asking the nurse for a PRN to give her a pill to calm her down, they got together and said, every week one of us will watch JAG and we will note it in the file so we can all have a conversation with Dorothy. I mean, it was absolutely incredible what little things can do. You know, again, it's about the commonalities versus the differences of what makes us comfortable. Another time, sometimes we get embarrassed when we um, have our loved ones out, and we were invited to a family friend's wedding. And my brothers, who didn't really do much with my mom, one brother said, I'll take her up for communion. And I'm like, okay, this should be interesting. (laughs) And so it was a big church, and they had five stations for communion. And he let my mom go first, of course. So my mom goes to one station, and then she goes to the next station, and she goes to the next station, and Scott's like trying to catch up with her and not make an, an incident. And yet, it didn't matter to anybody. And even the bride and groom and both their families said, what a moment. We will never forget. And, I, and on the way back to sitting down, she's thanking people for coming to my wedding. You know, I mean, the things sometimes that we try to squash, you know, we're, we're not letting other people experience things. And they're not laughing necessarily at my mom. They're laughing at the situation. And everyone at that wedding was going to remember that wedding, even more so. So, you know, we have to let go of our embarrassment. Um, As the Cookie Crumbles is a a story that I really want to share with you. Um, This was a really important one for me. And again, my mom was in the nursing home. This could happen anywhere. And it was a picnic. And they had the, the grills were wafting with hamburgers and hot dogs. They had music playing and lemonade and all kinds of stuff. And my daughter was hanging out with my mom, and they were having a great time. And I was helping getting other residents out in wheelchairs. And every time I would roll somebody out and lock them in, I would see my mom and my daughter were having a great time. And just as I'm rolling the last person out and locking them in, I hear my mom screaming at my daughter, I hate you, I hate you, leave me alone. My daughter was about 18. She had only ever known her grandma with dementia. They were two peas in a pod. And she was devastated. She comes running over to me just crying, just crocodile tears and her lips quivering. She's like, Mom, she hates me. She hates me. Everybody heard it. I didn't do anything to Grandma. I would never hurt Grandma. I said, Honey, tell me what happened. She says, Well, she was eating a cookie and a chunk fell on her chest, Mom, and I just, I just picked it up. That's all I did. I just picked up the cookie. I said, Honey, 
something else happened. Tell me what happened. Mom, I just told you what happened. I said, no, we have to break it down. What were you doing before you picked up the cookie? She's like, well, we were talking and laughing. I said, okay, you were talking and laughing. That's great. What else were you doing? I don't know, Mom. Were you holding Grandma's hand? Well, yeah, I always hold her hand. So you're talking and laughing. You're holding Grandma's hand. What else were you doing? Mom, I said, did you have eye contact with Grandma? Yeah, of course I had eye contact. So you're talking and laughing. You're holding her hand, and you have eye contact. What made you decide to pick up the cookie? Mom, I don't really know. I said, Danielle, I need you to think. This is the key. What made you decide to pick up the cookie? And she said, well, I guess there was a break in the conversation. I said, so you weren't talking and laughing anymore? No. Were you still holding her hand? Well, no, she's in that big jerry wheelchair, and I was sitting alongside her, and I had to stand up. I said, so you're not holding her hand? You're not talking and laughing? Did you have eye contact? Well, no, Mom. I had to look at her chest to pick up the cookie. I said, honey, you lost three multi-sensory connections with grandma. And in that nanosecond, you became a stranger. And you reached in and you touched her in an inappropriate spot. Her reaction was perfectly rational from her perspective. Again, we have to really look at what their fears are, what our fears are. We have to use that reaction equation, and we have to really pay attention to our nonverbal communication. Our nonverbals are over um, 75% of our communication, and yet we're still saying, say my name, you know, talk to me, respond. There's so many other ways that we communicate. We have to look at the whys behind things. We have to look at what are they seeing, what are they feeling, what are they tasting. What about sounds? You know, loud sounds can be really difficult. Background noises. Like I said, I'm 64. I'm finally starting to understand the background noise thing. (laughs) And it's irritating when I can't hear something clearly as I used to. Um, Shadows with light can um, really get people paranoid. When a cloud goes by and then they think there's somebody behind them and then they turn around and there's nobody there, all of those things can come into play. So we have to put our investigative hat on. And we also have to really learn to advocate for our loved one. So one of the things that uh, with my own mom was I I had to advocate with the dentist. Now you can see my mom's teeth are chipped and broken. And they're chipped and broken because the toothbrush scared her, you know. And for half a day, she would be upset because someone's pushing this thing in her mouth. We tried the swabs. We tried the washes. And then we said, peace and calm for her is more important than pretty teeth. But the dentist, the dentist had another idea. And he wanted to pull all those teeth. (laughs) And he wanted to give her, you know, he wanted to give her some dentures, which we all know would be in someone else's purse, drawer, or mouth. We don't know where, but they weren't going to be in my mom's mouth. And he said, well, don't worry, you don't have to pay for it. I said, this isn't about money. I said, she will know you've pulled her teeth, and her teeth were really important to her. He said, well, how will you know? I said, because my mom used to love a peanut butter parfait at Dairy Queen until all of a sudden the nut was a rock. So then we switched to the blizzard, which worked for a while, 
until there was gravel in her ice cream. And then we ended up going to McDonald's for just a simple Sunday. They still have their senses. Again, just because they can't communicate things doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Other times we have to advocate with our loved ones. Like my brothers hated this picture. I love this picture. My mom is full of joy. At, uh, they had an activity where they all dressed up as Klondike Kates, which are singers in Minnesota, and they all dress up in red. And So that was my mom. She was having a ball. But to, to them, this was embarrassing because they were looking for the wrong thing. It wasn't about, was my mom joyful? It was about, was my mom presentable to them? Even in the late stages, there can be great joy. My mom passed away in 2014, and we had lots of incredible moments. And some of them were very simple. Um, others were not. But the love was there. Many people don't understand the difference between dignity and ego when we care for somebody with dementia. And to me, that is absolutely critical. This is a picture of um, a musician who sang for my mom and with my mom, and somebody video clipped, uh, did a video of it. And I've got probably nine clips on my YouTube channel. And I've walked into big conferences where my mom is on the screen. And she, this was supposed to go on for an hour. It lasted a half an hour because she would fall asleep. And then she'd wake up and her hands and her toes would go. And sometimes she would know the words and sometimes she didn't. But once a month I would get together with a friend of my mother's who could never go visit her. And I said, okay, uh, well, I, we'll, we'll meet. And I'm explaining this whole um, situation to her that was my intent and as we're just scooting our butts into the booth at this restaurant this 76 year old woman saw that picture and she screamed out in the restaurant Lori I am so upset with you you've been telling me you're taking great care of your mother she looks horrible I am so disgusted with you how could you lie to me month after month, letting me think you're taking good care of your mother? And I got this nervous giggle, and I felt her eyes just trying so hard to just burn me to shreds. And then I looked at Kay, and I said, thank you. She said, thank you? What the heck are you thanking me for? Lori, I can't believe you've lied to me all these years. I said, Kay, I'm thanking you because until right now, I didn't know you didn't see what I see. Well, what the hell do you see, she said. I said, Kay, when I look at this picture, I see pure joy. I don't see the billy goat hair hanging off her chin. I don't see that her hair's not permed. I don't see that she doesn't have lipstick and eyeshadow and mascara and her blush on. I see pure joy. I see a big smile with dimples. I see her squinty eyes because her eyes disappear when we laugh, though there's still a glint. I said, when I look at this picture, Kay, I hear her giggle. This is what pure joy looks like. 
for my mom now. Those are the conversations we have to have with people. We can't keep prompting people up, looking like they're okay, and then complaining that nobody understands. Every single one of you need to tell your story honestly. We need to be able to get through that together. It's just so, so critical. Because perceptions are reality. And so we have to change those perceptions. I'm going to share two more things with you. This one is a tool um, that any of you are are, um, glad to download off my website called The Memory Chip. And this was created because one day I snapped on my mom horribly when she repeated something 45 times in 10 minutes. I didn't think it was cute. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't have time to play a game. I had tons of stuff to do. I was exhausted. I didn't sleep. And I just yelled at her, and I felt horrible. And my guess is everyone in this room has snapped on somebody and felt that kind of guilt. So I interviewed people around the world, both professional and staff, and I asked them three questions. The first is, what do you want your person to know? And so for the person, um, the professional basically said, well, I want them to know that I'm here to support them. And the family said, well, I want them to know I love them. But what I realized, our words aren't enough. We have to use our multi-sensory skills We have to come in with the same tone of voice, maybe the same saying, maybe the same cologne, um, and and always just give them more things to grab on. Because people with dementia say their brain's like Swiss cheese. The only problem is every morning they don't know where the holes are. So the more multisensory things we can give them to grab a hold of, the more they'll be able to remember that we are a safe person. The second question I asked people was, what do you have to focus on? Staff said, well, I have a job description, and most families said, I have a checklist. And I thought, good, I have that one. And then about three months later, I woke up out of a dead sleep, just almost hysterical, thinking I missed something in all of those interviews I did. And what I missed wasn't a word. What I missed was this sense that everybody had that said, This isn't how I pictured my life. And what I realized in that moment was that we cannot be person-centered or relationship-based or put them first when we have an emotional need. And so I needed to change what I focused on. I needed to first focus on kind of the base of Maslow's theory. Was she safe? Was she happy? Was she pain-free? And when I did that, I did my tasks differently. I was able to get rid of some because some of them were on there just to make me feel good to check something off for a disease that had no cure. I was able to let other people come in and help. I was able to remove time frames for maybe a medication that I thought I had to do at three, but I could have easily given at six because it wasn't pain-related. But it changed everything, and it allowed me to be a daughter and sit down next to her and just breathe and take in a calmness and a contentment that our relationship was first and foremost. And many times, you know, that doesn't take words. It's just being in someone's presence. But when we're really busy, we push that stuff out. 
And then I asked people, what do they want to remember? And most staff said, well, I don't need to remember anything. You know, it's my job. And that made me a little sad. And families said, well, I'm worried I won't remember the person who was. And to that I say, look in the mirror. You're not the person who was either. You have disappointed many in your lifetime for your choices. And you will continue to do so. So stop thinking you're all that. Again, look at our commonalities. And in closing, I just want to share a story called Betty the Bald Chicken with you. And Betty came to me in a dream. And I just kept seeing this bald chicken. And I kept seeing uh, the word Alzheimer's. And I thought, I'm not going to go to sleep if I don't write this story down. And we actually finally published the book this year. Um, Took me only 10 years to do it. But it's a story of a chicken who lived in this beautiful community on a farm. And she absolutely loved her life. And one day, she went out into the barnyard to have dinner. And while she was eating her corn, she felt this tug and this pull on her shoulder. And she looked around, and nobody was there. She couldn't figure out what what happened. But she knew something was wrong. But she decided she wasn't going to tell anybody what happened. And she went to finish eating, and she saw one feather had fallen. And she thought, well, that's interesting. I don't know how that happened, because it was like someone just pulled it out. And she went on with her life for about three months. And she went back out to eat dinner one night. And this time, she felt a tug and a pull. But she just squawked out really loud. And when she did, all the other barnyard animals looked at her. And she could see the fear in their eyes. And some of them were pushing her away. Others were pulling their their young in close. And she knew her life would never be the same from that point on. And what happened to her was people started to uninvite her to events that she was invited to. She was told she wasn't on committees anymore. Family wouldn't let her babysit some of the kids anymore. And she just felt desolated. And so she went on this walk in the, in the barnyard and thought she was just going to go to the outskirts. And she was crying and she was praying and she said, I'm a good chicken. I don't know what's wrong. I'm scared too. They won't have anything to do with me. And as she's crying and walking and praying, she trips on this rock and she, she stumbles forward and she falls down this hill. And as she's falling in this ravine, she's thinking, no one's even going to know I'm dead. No one cares about me. I mean, she was just horrified. But you see, what Betty didn't know was at the bottom of the ravine was a whole other community called the Caring Corral. And they heard her cries and her wails, and they all came in around her and supported her. They didn't ask her what was wrong. They just wanted her healthy. And as she got healthy, they invited her to stay in their community. No one from the barnyard ever came looking for her. So Betty decided she was going to live in the Caring Corral. And about three years later, Betty gets sick again. And this time, she's in the hospital. And the Caring Corral is thinking, we don't think Betty's going to make it. So the horse gallops up to the barnyard. And he gathers all the animals up there around. And he says, I need to tell you something. Betty's really sick. 
you have one last chance. What are you going to do? Are you going to continue to pity her and push her away like she wasn't part of your life? Are you going to reconnect and care for Betty and let her know what she's meant to you all of this time? You see, if we're honest, we've all been Betty. (laughs) We know what it feels like to not fit in. That has happened to us multiple times. If we're honest, we've probably all been a barnyard animal that's walked away from someone in need because we didn't have the time, the energy, or the money. And I know you're all part of the Caring Corral here because you showed up today. But you see, it doesn't make any difference who you've been or who you even are right now. It's all about who are you going to be in the next moment you're given. Have the conversations of care. Make a conscious choice. How are you going to show up? How do you want to be remembered? And how do you want to be taken care of? Because maybe you'll be next. So thank you. It's been an honor to speak with you all today. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.